Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. happy to have two very distinguished um, people with me today, which is uh, first of all uh, Dr. Thomas Moser, who is working for the um, Swiss National Bank and also doing extensive research on this aspect of CBDC, also of, um, of the underlying technologies and also of privacy. We will hear more um, from Thomas in just a second. And then I'm also very happy to welcome um, Mr. Wolfram Seidemann, who is CEO of uh, Giesecke and Devliens um, Technology Unit, who is like more, I think, in the practice compared to myself and Thomas. So who's also has already um, kind of developed a product around CBDC. And I'm very happy to have these, um, these great people today. Also later on, uh, David Tessero Lucas as the moderator. Um, but yeah, let's now go into the topic of today. And maybe as a very last announcement, it's really the last one, I promise, um, we have um, kind of created the Slido room for you. So if you have any questions, please, we have a Q&A session afterwards. So please, every question you have, raise the question here via Slido. So you have two possibilities to engage with Slido. You can first uh, scan the QR code here. Um, 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 or this is what you can do, just scan it. And the second, you can go to, to www.slido.com and you can insert the code for today, which is 339-339. And then you can also um, access the room and you can type in your question. And if this is a question which is for one specific person, please also indicate this um, person. Right, so without further ado, I would now hand over to um, Thomas, who will present like his concept of how to preserve privacy with a CBDC. Afterwards, I will follow with, with my presentation of some research I did. Afterwards, we engage into the panel discussion. And last but not least, we have a Q&A session. So thanks for your attention. And now I'm very happy to hand over to you, um, Thomas, and I'm very looking forward to your presentation. Thank you very much, uh, Jonas. Uh, great initiative. And as you said, um, I think it's an important topic, privacy. I try to sh share my screen. I hope you can see it. Yes. So, so thank you. This is a, um, um, as Jonas said, it's a, it's it's more of a research paper that we did. It's a, it's a working paper that has been issued at the uh, at the Swiss National Bank. You can download it there if you're interested in. It's together with David Chaum. David Chaum is a, is a very well known cryptographer and actually the person who came up with the idea to link cryptography to money in the 1980s. Um, unfortunately, never really took off, but he really uh, was, I would say, the first one to come up with this idea. So he, we took him on board. Then Christian Grothoff has actually implemented uh, what we are showing you. Uh, uh, his work on this came out of a project that he did, uh, that actually a PhD student of, of his uh, did, um, Florian Dold. He's, uh, he's quoted, his dissertation is also referenced in our paper. Um, and uh, when I came to it, I really said, let's set that up as a CBDC, because originally it was set up as something that a commercial bank could use, but we put it into a, into a setup of a CBDC. So what I want to show you is uh, basically how the privacy works, because that's, that's uh, what's important. So this would be a privacy-preserving CBDC. 
So uh, at the very high level, <clears throat> it's token-based. I know there is a big discussion uh, whether token versus account makes sense in the digital space. Some people say it doesn't, mainly because uh, economists and computer science people use the term token differently. But by token-based, I mean there are no accounts involved. Uh, so there are no identities uh, stored anywhere. It's centrally issued. It's not a DLT. Um, and uh, so, so, so that makes it easier to, to, to get privacy. <clears throat> and also it makes it very easily scalable. So Christian has, as I said, implemented it. He tested it. Uh, and uh, he, he came to the conclusion that the cost of the system uh, at scale uh, would be, as you can see, 0.001 euro per transaction. So very cheap, actually, just as cheap as a, as a transaction in a real-time growth settlement system of a central bank, or at least a Swiss one, would be now. So very cheap and extremely scalable, given that it's centrally issued. Uh, it's uh, designed so that it really uh, simulates a banknote it has a privacy that is uh, guaranteed. It's not promised. It's guaranteed so that the user has, has everything in her hand. <clears throat> it's quantum resistant uh, simply because there is no uh, information uh, stored anywhere. Uh, you will see that uh, for the payer. But it's not, uh, not uh, private and not anonymous for the one receiving the money. And that has to do with uh, compliance. And I will show you how that's solved. Because the big problem, of course, for a CBDC is uh, how do you balance privacy and compliance with anti-money laundering, uh, counterfeiting terrorism, know your customer? How do you bring those two things together? And then finally, but we also think it's important, it's open source software. So um, everyone can see the source code. You can see exactly what's going on. There are no hidden things in there. Uh, it's software only. Uh, and it's actually more than open source. It's uh, FLOSS. It's free, libre, and open source software, which means everyone can use it for free. Everyone can change it uh, for free. Uh, you cannot license it. You can't use it, change it, not license it. It's a GNU project. And those of you who are familiar with, for instance, the statistics packet, package R, R is also a, a GNU project. So the implementation that Christian did uh, is a GNU project. It's called GNU Talo. Um, maybe just uh, one more word on, on how it's related to uh, David Charm's eCash system. For those of you who are old enough to remember it, uh, as I said, 1983, it's, uh, he came up with this idea. Um, so uh, the changes or the improvements on that system. So the privacy works exactly how David um, um, basically invented it, but the improvements are that uh, in his system, the coins were not, uh, so you always had to have the exact coin. You couldn't, uh, uh, you couldn't have a fraction of a coin. So this is changed here. The protocol allows divisibility of coins. And one tricky thing that, uh, that Florian Dold solved in his dissertation is how do you give change without breaking privacy? And that's done with a very clever key exchange protocol. But so that's, that's one of the improvements. You can give change without breaking privacy. The other question was like, a transaction can fail. You can have a network outage, something cannot work properly. How do you uh, make sure that if the, the, the transaction doesn't go through, that you get the funds back without, again, without breaking privacy? So that's solved here. And then finally, as I said, the question, how do you combine uh, privacy 
uh, with uh, with the compliance, uh, with uh, anti-money laundering and so on. And we do that through the through architecture, through a tour-tier system. So what happens is that the central bank will publish on the website, for instance, different public keys for different denominations. So you have to imagine that the central bank would say, okay, we have... Uh, this is the public key for one euro coins. This is the public key for five euro coins. This is the public key for 10 and so on. So what happens is now Alice, she can now choose one of these domination, denomination uh, keys and she can create now a coin based on this denomination. That means she, she creates a key pair, both a private and a public pair, which is the coin. So it's Alice, <clears throat> it's the user who creates the coin. Then when she when she has those um, those key pairs, she does something that, that David actually invented, uh, namely the blind signatures. She blinds the coin with a blinding factor. She chooses the, the, the factor and she blinds the coin. Sometimes we got the question, like, how do you make sure that the, the, the central bank does the blinding properly? Uh, we don't have to make sure that because it's the user who blinds it. So everything is in the hands of, uh, of Alice. She blinds the coin. She sends it basically to the central bank uh, for blind signature and the central bank signs the coin without seeing, you can imagine, without seeing the serial number of the coin. And that's the important thing. Um, and we do that actually intermediated through a commercial bank for, for the main reason that the commercial bank does the, the, the checks on know your customer, anti-money laundering and so on, uh, just like nowadays. So this is not coded. Uh, the compliance, but it is delegated to the intermediary. And and as I said, it's like a banknote. If you if you get cash from an ATM, you get it from your bank account, and that's the same thing here. You you basically get your uh, CBDC by withdrawing it from your bank account, so the bank knows who you are. So they the bank takes care of uh, a KYC AML CFT. And, uh, and the, the contact between the commercial bank and the central bank is really in the background. But now the central bank signs the blind coin. Neither the commercial bank nor the central bank know uh, the serial number of that coin. Alice gets that back and then Alice unbind, <clears throat> unblinds the coin. So she's the only one who knows the serial number of her coin. Now she can pay Bob uh, anonymously because, as I said, neither bank A nor the central bank know who is connected to that coin. And the coin, unlike in Bitcoin, where the public key is basically your identity, or you could say your account on the ledger, here the public key uh, is, is the coin itself. And Alice has access to that coin through her private key, and she can sign off that coin to Bob uh, totally anonymously because no one will be able to connect that coin to her. Now, how do you prevent double spending if you don't have a ledger? That's that's the other thing that uh, that David had to solve. And basically, it's through incentives. I mean, Alice could now turn around and pay several times with that coin. That's why, um, first of all, of course, Bob checks the signature of the central bank that it's valid. And then he has an incentive to deposit the coin, because if he deposits the coin, then the bank will check whether this coin has already been spent before. So the double spending is done by checking whether this coin has already been used before. Uh, so no one knows that that coin came from Alice, but you could say if the same coin has been used in a different uh, uh, transaction before, that's why, that's why Bob deposits it. Now you could say, 
Um, I mean, there's no technical need for Bob to deposit it. If if Bob would be the son of Alice and he can trust Alice, then of course there would be no need to to immediately deposit it. Uh, so you could give that coin to your child. The child doesn't have to spend it immediately. Um, but if you don't know, if they don't know each other, of course he will. Uh, Bob will deposit the coin. Uh, that also takes care of uh, of know your customer, anti money laundering, and so on. So the, the fact that he received the coin. It's totally transparent to the system, but no one knows um, what Alice did, what she bought. No one knows that it was Alice that bought something from Bob. So that the spending is totally anonymous. And what the central bank does, as I said, the central bank, the only thing that they have is a list of the coins that have already been spent. So each coin can only be spent once. The, the central bank checks the, the new coin against the list of coins if it has already been spent, then uh, Bob will get the message immediately. That's all within within uh, within a second. He'll get immediately the message not valid. Uh, but if the coin has not been spent before, you know, then he will deposit it and it will be okay. The central bank will put this new serial number on the list of spent coins so that Alice cannot spend that coin twice. But as you can also see, the central bank, the only thing that the central bank has is a list of spent coins. There is no uh, name attached to it, no identity. No one can connect that coin with uh, with Alice. So that's the privacy concept. And with that, let me let me uh, give back to you, Jonas. Yeah, thank you very much, Thomas, for presenting your concept. Really, also, um, yeah, briefly but really precisely how you um, enable privacy or even more actually anonymity. So um, thank you very much. We also have um, put your paper into the YouTube chat. So whoever wants to read more about the paper um, can just do this by clicking on the link in YouTube. And we also have received some first questions. So this is, um, this is actually really, um, really good. So thanks for those questions. Um, yeah, what, what I would now um, do is what I would continue with, with the presentation of, of um, the concept um, we've basically um, yeah, developed, which is kind of um, kind of different, but also to address one question which has been raised, um, this, uh, the, the session today will be recorded, so it's live streamed on YouTube and it will also remain on YouTube. So um, yeah, just this to address one question which has appeared just a second ago. Right, so now I'm taking over again for the next also very short time, maybe 10 to 15 minutes to say um, how we design a concept because this was really inspiring what, what Thomas together with um, with Christian Grothoff and also um, David Schaum did. But we, we decided in the end to, to use a kind of similar system, but also a system that works in a completely different, uh, different way. You will understand why in just a second. Um, and to say this is a joint work with a few of my very distinguished uh, colleagues, um, for example, Matthias Babel, Benjamin Schellinger, Johannes Sedelmeier from the University of Bayreuth, Germany, and also Alexander Bechtel, who um, is at the University of St. Gallen. So it was actually us um, developing it. Um, yeah, so I have structured the short presentation in two parts. First, I want to take a slight step back and talk about why privacy matters. So why I personally think that a CBDC should address this need for privacy. Also something we will for sure discuss later on in the panel. And as a second, a second point, I would then turn to, to our proposal, how we decided again, also on a high level. 
So why privacy for payment matters? I think there are a few reasons and a very uh, and also um, yeah really important reasons. And I put here basically the from my perspective three most important ones. The first one is that privacy itself constitutes a fundamental civil right. So it's something which is um, yeah it, it's it's written in law that there should be a fundamental right to privacy and that privacy has to be preserved. And here's just um, as a few norms for example the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights or also the Convention for the Protection of, of Human Rights and, and Fundamental Freedoms, just to, to name a few, right? So it's basically something that's written in law we people have to have. But there are, of course, other reasons. Um, one I think is really important is that privacy pre first prevents surveillance abuses and also the restriction of transactions of specific individuals. Because if a specific transaction cannot really be assigned to one particular person, you do not know which um, ethnicity this person ha has, with which gender, etc. So there is really no information where the person can be identified and also can in some scenarios be restricted. I'm of course not claiming that this is the case in an advanced economy, and, but what we have seen is that this is unfortunately still today in some countries reality. And I think for, for these countries, um, even more than for us, this is a really important aspect why privacy should be uh, should be preserved. And um, also when it later comes to, to surveil people to, to see which transactions they in the end conducted. If there is a very high degree of privacy in the payment system, there is no possibility to uh, draw any conclusions when it comes to um, who basically owns the fund and who um, yeah, kind of um, conducted any transactions. And the last point um, I would I would bring here today is that privacy protects users from data exploitation by third parties, for example, payment service provider, and also by data leaks. So again, what I mean by that, if this transaction data is not linked to a person, of course, this data cannot really be analyzed. So in a sense that it, it, they can be later on maybe also sold or monetized by some, um, some third party, which I, I think is at least for a person that likes to have privacy, an important aspect. And we've also seen in the very near past that there have been um, quite several attempts that also data leaks have occurred. So which means, for example, we had had the fact that some email providers basically lost or have been hacked and some data were available online from millions of people, or also some credit card information available online. Um, of course, this is an issue, but hackers are really smart. And I think there is really no way to have a payment system that has a really yeah, kind of a likelihood of 0.000% to be hacked. So another approach would be to just not store data, which can be um, exploited and make sense of, right? And this is why I also would vote for a very high degree of privacy, because then um, if somebody hacks the system, he, he sees some randomly um, randomly looking numbers, or for example, with Thomas, maybe see some serial number, but he doesn't know who owns the serial number, so it cannot do anything with it. And this is, um, as I said, also a very important aspect of privacy. And this, all these, these points basically hold for privacy in general, but what's about financial transactions? And I think here privacy is even more essential because transaction data are really confidential. So of course, it depends on your mentality, also on your country, but at least when I'm thinking here about Germany, money and payments and salary is a really confidential topic you're not talking about on your daily life with your neighbor, etc. And so this is something which has been secured even more. Um, and therefore, I think also in the payment space, privacy has to be ensured. Um, and now people could argue, well, but we have cash today. 
and cash is perfectly private. It's anonymous. No third party knows anything about the transaction. No bank, no central bank, no service provider. And this is true. But the thing is, we also observe that the use of cash as a means of payments is declining in most economies. So even if central banks, of course, do not want to abolish cash, and I totally believe that, we see this market-driven trend that, for example, in some of the Nordic countries, as Sweden or also in China, cash is partly not even accepted anymore as a means of payment, which means also privacy, anonymity is kind of is kind of fading away. And therefore, I think even if today we don't need this privacy like now, but I think we will, might demand this in, in 10, 15, I don't know, want to put a, a timestamp here, but in, the, in a few decades where cash at least could be um, kind of marginalized when it comes at least to a means of payment and store of value is another, another um, yeah, aspect. Right, and what we have also seen is that European citizens like to have privacy. So this is a statistics um, basically stemming from the consultation that the ECB did. So they started and asked um, the euro area people which features the digital euro should have. So what, what's most important? And here the most important feature with a very, a very strong um, position was privacy, which with an average 43%. So this shows that European citizens even very diversely distributed across countries, as you see here, kind of demand privacy. And I think this, if you're not convinced by the first slide, like this is again, as a central banker, a reason why you should look, look into it because you ask people what they want. They say they want privacy. And then in the end, of course, you now also have to look um, into how you can reach this. And this is how, um, this is the system that Thomas designed for privacy preserving CBDC. And now I would like to present the, the, uh, the concept we have basically came up when it comes to this privacy preserving CBDC. So here again, I, we want to reach a system that ensures full data privacy for CBDC up until to a specific threshold. So this means that until a specific threshold, all transaction data are fully private. That means that no bank, no central bank, no regulatory authority no, learns anything about who the, the sender of a fund, for example, is, right? Um, so this is really essential. This is how we define this full privacy. So this is the privacy, also as Thomas said it, very similar to the privacy today we have with cash. And since we don't have a trusted or a third party um, to rely on when it comes to privacy, um, this uh, basically means that we, we have to rely on some, on some uh, kind of um, yeah, tool to be used. And here, as Thomas, we use a cryptographic approach. Um, with the, the concept we have heard about, this uses uh, blind signatures invented by David Chaum. We use another um, innovation, which is so-called zero-knowledge proofs, you might have heard about, which is a cryptographic technique, for example, used in some privacy um, coins as, for example, Zcash. And we use this zero-knowledge proofs to um, kind of establish the privacy in this context. As also the first concept, we are not based on a DLT, so we use a centralized ledger. However, here also, if there is a central bank that has a use case for a, a DLT-based CBDC, it could also work um, on a distributed ledger instead of a centralized one. But how does it work? Basically, in, in our system, as with the system um, Thomas just described, there is like something we label trustless privacy. So there is really no possibility for the central bank to learn anything about the data. So you don't even have to trust the central bank that it's not looking into the data. There is just not a way to interpret them in a, in a useful uh, manner. How is this ensured? For a fully private transaction, this is ensured as follows, because the transaction parties involved, they don't send 
like what's the amount of money and to whom should I send to the central bank? So as it maybe is today the case with commercial banks when they process transactions, they only send a proof of, um, of, of some, some rules. So how it works is, for example, when I send some money to Thomas, I would propose a transaction and he would propose a counter transaction. So for me, I would propose, please increase, uh, decrease my balance by 100 and um, increase Thomas's ba balance by 100. But we do not reveal this to the central bank. We only reveal that um, the, the difference is the same. So we are not kind of create money out of thin air and that we comply to the rules of the system. So this means that the central bank knows no details of the transaction, but just the proofs from our side that we comply to the rules that we do not create any money and, and that the, the data, for example, is the same. Okay, so this is how we ensure privacy, of course, in a different way as, as Thomas. When it comes to compliance, this is, of course, really essential because we don't want to have a payment system that is fully anonymous because in this sense, you cannot detect any illicit activities when it comes to anti-money laundering or terrorist uh, anti-terror financing. But as we do not um, kind of, uh, yeah, have this data aggregated and interpreted by the first party, we kind of outsource the compliance component to the end user. So this means that before a user wants to do a transaction, he has to prove, again, zero knowledge proof, has to prove that he um, is, for example, not exceeding the limit. So this means, again, remember, we have a threshold approach that you have anonymous transactions until a specific limit. So the user has to prove that he or she is below the limit. And it also, for example, has to prove that he or she has a valid ID. And we use this digital ID because we want that every user can only open up one account. Because if a user could open up more than one account, then he could also spend these limits some way more often than once, right? And this was kind of would kind of dilute the, the strength of this limit. And this is why we link this to a digital ID. It would also work um, in another way if you say, well, this is something I will not talk about today. Right, so last but not least, let's take a look at the architecture. So in our system, we have the central bank obviously issuing the CBDC, right? Because it's central bank money. And we have two payment rails. So in the middle, we have the private um, CBDC, which is um, yeah the one I just described where you can transact in a fully private way. And this is done as follows, that the two transaction parties make a transaction proposals or proposal and a counter proposal and prove that they have complied to the rules, that no money has been created, et cetera. And the central bank has the task to check the proof, which is quite easy. So it's not resource intensive. This is, can be done easily. And if the proofs are then validated, then the central bank adds this entry to the database. And this is how a transaction is settled. Besides this private solution, there is also this transparent CBDC you see on the right-hand side. And this transaction happened if a specific limit is exceeded. So if you do not have any budget anymore to transact fully privately, then you can do the transparent payment. And this transparent payment is very similar to how payments today work with credit cards or something here. The bank, in our case, a payment service provider is involved and the bank knows who owns the account. So here you do, you do not have a strong degree of, of privacy, but this is fine because we said we wanted to have this, this uh, threshold approach and we, we um, thus meaning that we also have the, want to have the opportunity to be fully private on the one hand side, but also to fight illicit activities on the other hand side, right? And just to, to add, we also have the possibility to do semi-private transactions. So for example, if you want to think about a merchant, when you go and go to a merchant and pay, 
there could be the need for the regulator that the merchant, because he's collecting so much money, that the um, the person would actually not be uh, should be private. And here it's the case that a merchant can also be transparent, but the other the one transaction side can be private. So this is something which is also feasible. And to get money which you can spend privately, you can either way go into the transparent way so that you do a transactions from the transparent side to the privacy pool. Or the second alternative would be to use some kind of specific ATM where you can convert cash into CBDC. This might seem a little bit odd to you at first hand, but the interesting thing is that in China, they are currently testing with their CBDC solution such setups so that you can convert cash directly into CBDC. So this is something we could also in the near, near future and see in some other jurisdictions as well. Last, when we think about the user, it's kind of the case that the user owns a digital wallet. And with the digital wallet, he has to prove that he owns a digital ID. And in the wallet, he does all the local accounting. So in this wallet itself, there is all the transaction information recorded. But as I said, not all informations are shared with the central bank, but only the proofs. So this means that the central bank only sees the proof of the transaction, but it does not see the, um, the exact transaction detail, transaction partner, et cetera, which makes the proposal kind of private. Yeah, so this just as a very rough overview over the approach we would um, we, we kind of suggest. So we have, do not have this um, kind of operating as, as Thomas did or also the proposal um, Wolfram Seidemann is, is presenting in the panel. So this is, has been just a concept, but we are happy, very happy that we are also actively engaged with some central banks that liked our approach and um, yeah, to see if we can get this also in um, some direction going. If you're interested to read more, we also will post the paper into the YouTube chat. I also in included um, a link here to the to the show and um, to the um, to the paper as well. We also have a longer video online, so I think there are some ways to um, yeah to to look into this. Right. So yeah, this was was it actually from from my side. Um, and uh, thanks again to you, Thomas, for um, for having your concept on on privacy presented. And now I would like to, to hand over, also to welcome um, Mr. Wolfram Seidemann um, to, 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 the, to the event who will join us in the panel. And now I would hand over to, to David, David Tercero Lucas, who is one of our DEA associate team member and will basically do the um, moderations. And I just see before we start one last question in the chat is, is about the slides. So from my perspective, I'm very happy to share my slides afterwards. So you can contact us at the DEA or me pers uh, personally via, via LinkedIn or Twitter. And for Thomas, maybe you can, can say if, if you also want to share your slides. Um, but uh, this is, of course, up to you. And now I'm, yeah. No, that's fine. I mean, I only have pictures, but <laughs> if someone still wants the slides, yes, no problem. Okay. Great, and now I'm really handing over to you, David, um, who's moderating the, the panel. Okay, so thank you, thank you so much, Jonas, also for your presentation, also Thomas for your, your presentation as well. And let me just uh, quick introduce uh, Dr. Seidermann, uh, who is the CEO of G&D, Currency Technology GmbH. And as you all probably know, G&D has developed its own CBDC solution called Filia, that is currently employed for CBDC prototypes in Thailand and in Ghana. Okay, so let me just start the debate asking you, Dr. Seidemann, uh, given that we have already listened to the proposals by, by Thomas and Jonas, 
how uh, about how to enable private payments with CBDC? Okay, so Dr. Seidman, can you explain to the audience how you at GND approach the aspect of privacy with your CBDC solution? Yes, thank you, David, for this kind of introduction and um, good evening to everyone. Um, well, in fact, when we looked at um, the uh, topic of central bank digital currency, we first tried to understand what are the requirements for a public form of digital payment. And in order to understand that, I think we need to look at the current form of public payment, which is cash. And cash comes with a lot of attributes which are highly welcomed by the society and um, therefore is a very used instrument around the globe. Um, and Jonas, I think you're right. In some um, economies, we see the convenience of digital instruments um, getting more attraction and more traction, um, but still, Life is uh, or cash is very much life and kicking around the globe. As you could see in the pandemic, cash and circulation actually has grown a lot, and there are good reasons for it. But cash comes with also one disadvantage, which is it cannot be used in digital business model. So what we try to do is to really develop a solution that um, carries the benefits of cash into the digital age and create a digital form of cash. And that new form of money. CBDC. I think we have a fantastic historic choice now to develop the money of the future. And that means it has to work in all possible markets. It has to work in a very simple way, person to person. And for us, offline payment was one of the key requirements that we wanted to, to implement as well. And at the other extreme, it has to work in new markets that are currently developing and where a lot of um, new um, um, business models will come up in the future that we may not know yet. Think about machine-to-machine -machine payment. Think about money streaming. Think about a lot of um, uh, different applications where additional products and services may be attractive for businesses and, and uh, users. So we want to have a platform where the uh, um, value is issued by the central bank, who is the guardian of the currency, but that can be then used as basis for innovative service by everyone, even without being dependent from the central bank. So that's the fantastic uh, situation that we have today with cash as well. Cash is the only instrument that makes the user independent from the issuer. Everyone can use it. And so we want to cr create, a, um, and, and we actually um, made great progress and are, as you said now, um, testing this proof of concept of Philia, moving it into pilot projects, um, where you can achieve this full span of use cases and potential markets. Okay, so thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Seidman. Probably uh, there are going to be a lot of questions about this project in, in the chat that we will tackle later on. Okay, but first let me let me start by asking, for instance, to, to Thomas Moser a question that I think that is 
more or less relevant because one year ago, the Bank of England's fintech director, Tun Mutund, said in a speech that privacy was non-negotiable for a, for a retail CBDC. And let me quote the sentence that Mr. Mutund said. He said that privacy must be preserved. Privacy is not negotiable and it is essential to trust in money and there must be a clear consensus for how society's expectations of privacy will be safeguarded. So from your perspective, uh, Dr. Moser, is privacy indeed non-negotiable for a CBDC? See, I think that the, the, the issue really is, what do you mean by privacy? <laughs> so I think all, all central banks clearly would say, yes, privacy is important, but you can have very different perspectives on privacy. If you listen to some central bankers, they say, you know, the CBDC should, should protect the privacy of the user against commercial interests, against the, the big techs, the Facebooks and so on. You know, that's, I think, what I hear a little bit from the ECB. Then you have others uh, uh, who say, you know, no, we want privacy from the state, uh, from, from the central bank, actually. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is there are different degrees of privacy. Uh, you know, you can have full anonymity. That's basically what, what, uh, what we try to show. Uh, or you can have privacy in the sense that your data is confidential. You entrust your data to someone. So I think there are really, really different views out there. There will be some form of privacy, you know, uh, but but I think the degrees of privacy will uh, will really differ uh, from central bank to central bank. And it's also clear that uh, I think some of the law enforcement um, institutions would really also like this uh, as an opportunity to to get a much tighter grip on anti money laundering or or generally illicit use of uh, of finance so i think there will be exactly to get that balance right will be will be extremely important uh, and will be also extremely interesting but um uh, you know uh, wolfram said it's a, it's a historic opportunity to basically redo the cash i think it's also a historic opportunity maybe to think then in the next step about uh, doing AML, uh, CFT, uh, and all these compliance issues better, in a better way, and maybe achieve better results, while at the same time being less intrusive. Uh, so that's, I think, a really an interesting opportunity. Uh, I, I think that I, I agree. But uh, Jonas or, or Wolfram, uh, do you agree? Do you, would you like to share your, your own thoughts about it? Yeah, sure. So maybe building on what Thomas said, I think it's really essential to understand that there is so many different degrees of privacy. I mean, there is, I mean, when you also look at some ECB reports about the, the testing of the digital euro, they kind of tested perfect, fully private, anonymous, and, and also quite transparent means of payment. So this, this uh, kind of array is really, really diverse. And I think one should, should think this a little bit more from the use case perspective, because what the central bank, the ECB, for example, and this is like also the, the focus we, we are having, um, what they do is they currently investigate in the investigation phase what the digital euro should look like, right? Which use case it should address. And I think here it's really essential to have an, an innovative payment infrastructure that is in some dimension better than the ones we already have. Because what I think it's not necessary currently to have, for example, a PayPal at 2.0, where the only difference is like the issuer. So I think that we need more, that we need to, to have a, clue, a clear, a unique setting proposition, something which makes the CBDC 
better in some dimension than the means of payment we have today. And this can be cash like privacy, but it can also be other aspects as uh, for example, programmability or maybe a means of payments which can be transacted in the online and an offline way. This is also something we don't have today. So I, I, would, I would say it depends on the use cases, but it's a really important dimension of this. I think you have a very important point here, Jonas. Um, it doesn't make sense for a central bank to copy existing digital payment systems because then central banks would compete in an area where the private sector already has established bad practice and um, that wouldn't make sense. So the, there has to be a unique positioning of a CBDC. And um, I already mentioned that we, we strongly believe that means CBDC needs to be the full inclusive solution because only the central bank is guided by public interest. All the other proposals out are driven by profit interests. So that means they only target a segment of the market. The, CV, the, the central bank needs to target the entire population and the entire um, economy and, and, and all markets. And that means if we design it properly, we have to also um, address all possible use cases in order to achieve full financial digital inclusion. And I would come back to th that point that you asked uh, before, David, on um, privacy versus transparency. Um, I I'm more on that side to say privacy is not negotiable. Um, but um, and, and I would like to offer a solution that is private by design. But of course, on the other hand, we need to also take care of governance and um, ensure that established processes um, uh, can be um, also applied to digital cash, or as Thomas is proposing, even improve those processes of money laundering and um, compliance. But what we the, the solution to this is um, not to see both as two antipodes, but as two different layers. So we, in our solution, Philia, we separate the payment layer from the compliance layer. And with that, we can create kind of a scalable privacy or transparency. So we offer a full private journey for lower amounts where no data is even collected because that's the strongest non-negotiable position of privacy. And at the same time, of course, we need to take care of, of governance. And that means if it comes to higher transaction values, we need to do a registered journey. And here, the existing financial system has established good processes. Um, and we, similar as, as Thomas presented in his paper, um, we also think that the commercial banks um, need to stay engaged and do the uh, know your customer procedures. And um, if you want to, to trade with higher values, you need to um, have a registered wallet that in case of a fraud, would enable the authorities to um, go to the um, commercial bank and ask which person is actually behind that ID number of the wallet that is participating in a registered payment. That, of course, goes only with uh, law enforcement or, or, or disorder, uh, the court decision. So the central bank, per se, who has no interest in that data, in the personal data, um, also doesn't need to have that. So with that approach, I think we can um, solve that paradox. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for this for this answer. And I think it is quite related to the to the following question because the, apart from the previous sentence that I have mentioned for from Mr. Mouton, he also said or highlighted that at the same time privacy does not have to mean anonymity. And I think that this is a key. And let me quote here an article of David Birch uh, because he pointed out that we should make an important distinction between then privacy and, and anonymity. And according to him, he said that in the world of cryptocurrency, anonymity is unconditional. That means, according to him, that it is computationally infeasible to discover the link between a person in the real world and value online. While privacy is conditional, it means that the link is hidden by some third party, for instance, like a bank, and not disclosed unless certain criteria are met. And let me just uh, address this question to you, uh, Dr. Moser. Do you share this view? What's your, your, what are your thoughts about it? See, I would, I, I mean, I'm not a, um, you know, there are different, as I said, definitions of privacy, but I would, I mean, the way I would define it is, and I'm coming more from like a data or data science perspective, I would say there are different degrees of privacy, and, uh, and the strongest one is clearly anonymity. That means that uh, no data is collected, you know, there is no data to be have, had. Then I would say the next degree is pseudonymity. Which and, and that's actually what's, what Bitcoin is. You know, a lot of people say or claim that you can make Bitcoin payments anonymous. You can't. It's uh, pseudonymous, which means there is, you know, there is, it's like the old uh, Swiss uh, number bank accounts. I mean, there is some kind of an identity there. The, the identity is the public key that's, that's on the ledger. And of course, you can be very careful and make sure that no one can link that identity, that pseudonym, to your real identity. But even then, you know, you can still analyze the payments. I mean, there are a lot of uh, different ways that you, of course, take a, a, a new key every time and so on. But I mean, if you, there, and that's been shown by a lot of researchers, even if it's pseudonymous, you can uh, find out uh, some attributes of the person, even if you don't know who the person is, you can find out that the person likes this or the person most likely does this, and you can start discriminating. Uh, and, and using this information. So that's clearly a, a, a smaller degree of uh, privacy. And then there is the, 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 the smallest degree of privacy is just confidentiality. When you entrust someone your data, and that's basically what we do nowadays with our financial data. Our banks, they know, they know what we do, but a lot of people uh, you know, are not that worried that their bank knows um, what kind of payments they, they do. They are worried that the state knows. So with the banks, it's at least decentralized. You know, the bank just has a certain picture. That the, I think what people are worried about is that some central institution has all the data and can also combine that with other data. And then you can find out quite a bit about uh, a person. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would uh, see it. Yeah, if uh, Jonas or, or Dr. Seidemann would like to, to share any thoughts about it or... Yeah, I, I, to, to build on this, I actually agree with, with Thomas 100%. Again, it depends on the definition. I mean, I think what's quite nice to see with all our three solutions, technology is ready to do it. And the technology is here to also provide full anonymity. But the question is, in the end, what, what the regulator kind of wants and what the central bank wants. And um, yeah, I think this is something we, we will see in the very near, near future, near future um, how this privacy slash anonymity slash confidentiality will be really materialized.
Okay, so let me now, uh, well, if you want to, to say something there, Dr. Seidemann. Well, I, I just want to add that, in fact, it's an important topic, which also requires a political debate, because it's about the values and the political system that we won't like to, to live in. So it's not a question of the central bank, but it's also a question of the parliaments, and we should engage more into that political debate, how we want to create our future we want to live in. And um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's good that we address that topic. Um, technically, um, a lot is possible. We shouldn't underestimate what Thomas Moser said. Um, the, the power of artificial intelligence and data analytics, um, as well as also the behavior of people who want to pay anonymous, but then post a picture of themselves with their location, what they just bought. Um, so perception is reality, um, therefore we need to take care of that. But after all, uh, it's also a political debate on how we want to design this future. Yeah, okay, so thank you. And I continue with, with you, Dr. Seidemann. Uh, I think that we all may agree that the balance should be struck between allowing a certain degree of privacy in CBDC payments and ensuring compliance with regulations. Regulations that, you know, aimed at tackling uh, money laundering and the finance of terrorism. In the most extreme case, fully private uh, CBDC payments could lead to a substantial increase in uh, illicit activities. How can this issue of supporting illicit activities through a privacy-preserving CBDC be addressed? What is or what are your, your opinions or your thoughts about it? That, that's not an easy question to answer. Yeah. Because as we just debated, um, we should not put society under general suspicion. Um, also, if you, if you look at um, today's public payment instrument, which is cash, um, there are a lot of studies um, uh, analyzing that there is no correlation between cash and crime. Uh, criminals don't need to have that instrument to do their business. Even there are studies where uh, researchers went into prisons talking to criminals, asking them whether they need um, cash for their business, and they are laughing at them. So I think we have to find a good balance of offering a uh, um, payment system that ensures privacy to the honest user, and that's the majority, but then have that compliance layer that allows to identify if there are suspicious activities. And then we should have um, processes that under certain circumstances allow then law enforcement to, to engage. Um, and um, then um, the technology will, um, of course, give the opportunity then to, to have more data and analyze data um, to um, solve these issues. But I believe for the person that, um, that is interested to buy um, uh, some medicine at the pharmacy, it's important to offer a true private instrument that allows the person to feel comfortable. And that's why we need to, to tackle of, um, or take care of both elements. Yeah. Uh, so uh, trying to trying to open in the, the debate a little bit, Jonas or, or Thomas, the first one that you prefer to, to talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, can, I, I, I fully agree with what Wolfram said. And I think there are two important things that, that he said that uh, maybe I rephrase. One is that, you know, the assumption that privacy means that you have something to hide, something bad to hide. I think that should really get, you know, something that, that has to be uh, um, clearly said. That, that has nothing to do with that. You know, you 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 want your privacy not because you have something bad to hide. I mean, all of us, or I guess most of us, have curtains in front of our windows, and it's not because we do something bad in our apartment or in our house, but we want some privacy. Um, you want privacy when you when you vote. You don't want other people necessarily to know how you vote, not because it's something bad that you do, but it's because it's important. And that's the second point that the Wolfram also said. It's not just important from an individual point of view; it's important from a societal point of view for this uh, you know as a democratic free society uh, relies on on privacy and has to protect the privacy of people who are not abusing it but then of course it, there's always the problem that some people then abuse this privacy for illicit um behavior and that the really difficult thing is to get this right balance to kind of not allow this illicit uh, behavior at the same time protect the, the privacy, which is important for individuals and for society as a whole. Yeah, maybe building on what, uh, what, what Thomas and Wolfram said, I, I fully agree. And I think Wolfram, your, your argument was really good to say we need a political debate about it. Because what we currently see is that we have the debate when it comes to cash payments, right? So which seems kind of going into the other direction that you want a European limit on cash payments, right? So it, it rather, and this is also what, what beta, data kind of show that these limits for, I mean, if you remember how cash payments today work here at, again in Germany, we have a, a threshold approach so we can transact with cash in a fully private way until a specific amount of money. And if you exceed this threshold, then you have to provide your ID. Um, and, and this, this threshold has been basically lowered for the, for the last decades and indicating from my perspective, kind of the wrong direction when it comes to privacy. But nevertheless, I think this is really a good point now to start about the, the, the future of privacy, not just with cash, but with the financial system in general or uh, CBDC in particular, because, and this is also why I personally like the, the approach we, we used, namely the threshold, because this can be, for example, an account balance threshold, a turnover limit threshold, whatever the regulator says, and we just have to insert a number. But this clearly should be a, a regulatory process and nothing just set by the central bank or uh, us like having the, the research on the system because we cannot, cannot judge it. So it really needs a debate about it. Um, and, and this is, I think, why this, this threshold process makes sense because we kind of just replicate cash as we know, as we know it today. So as I said, we have this limit already today. We have it then with CBDC as well. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of, I wouldn't say I disagree, but we just handle it differently that um, different as what you were from um, said that we have like a bank, for example, that supervises that money laundering restrictions uh, have been um, have been basically complied with. But we just say we have a threshold. And if below the threshold, some transfer take place, the law enforcement just doesn't care because it's too low. Right. So again, kind of looking, looking how, how cash does it today. But yeah, here again, plenty of ways. And I really would like also this event today to get this privacy aspect on the agenda and also to, to kind of bring the political debate about this um, on top. Okay, so thank you. Thank you, Jonas. Uh, now, Dr. Moser, in some studies, it has been shown for citizens that there seems to be the so-called uh, privacy paradox. That means that citizens see privacy as essential, 
but then they don't really behave in a privacy-preserved manner. Okay, for example, everyone wants to have privacy, but they use social media networks or big texts, which uh, sometimes they don't really behave in a kind of uh, very privacy-preserving attitude. So according to you, what does this privacy paradox imply for CBDC? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good point. And uh, Jonas pointed out this... Um, Surveys that have been done by the ECB, but also by the Bank of England. And, and as he showed, people said, you know, we want privacy. And then, of course, as you said, some people point out, well, why are you all on Facebook posting your pictures if you want privacy? I think one problem or one, one uh, solution to this paradox is that a lot of times people do not realize uh, how much privacy they give up. You know, I think a lot of people... Uh, I mean, if you post something on Facebook, you're fully aware that this is not private. I think the problem starts there when you're not aware of it. If you make a payment uh, and uh, and your data is collected, and especially your data is then sold to a, another party and used for for other purposes, and I think a lot of people still don't realize how how that is uh, uh, almost uh, regularly done. And also what we talked about, the, the, the data science, you know, artificial intelligence, just the possibilities that you have today with combining the data and then really, uh, really finding out a lot. And I think if people would be more aware, and that's starting slowly, you know, knowing what the big techs really know, what Google knows about us uh, just from our searches, I think people start realizing that. And the more people realize that, uh, the more uh, concerned they, they are. That's what I'm convinced of. Uh, the other thing is, you know, people are ready to give up privacy for convenience, but the important point is they have to they, they get they have to get something for it. So I'm I, I you know I would assume that some people say, okay, you know, if I sell my data to to a, a commercial enterprise, but that's important that they in the first place have to own the data, and I think that's also what's important for a CBDC by just providing the option. You know, like nowadays with cash, you say to people, okay, if you want to be totally private, we have a solution here. That increases the the the, the data ownership and the power of the consumer. And that then forces that the commercial companies, if they want the data, they have to give you something for it. And I think it makes a, 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 a level playing field. And that's why it's important just to have the option, just to give people a, a private payment option. If they use it or not, that's up to them. But at least they, they have an option. That's why I think uh, it's very important to have privacy in a CBDC. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your answer. I don't know if Jonas or Dr. Seidemann uh, would like to, to share uh, their thoughts about it. I can only support what uh, Thomas said. To, to offer the option, I think, is, is key. Today, if you want to pay digital, you are forced to enter into a third-party contract. And um, that is the attractiveness of CBDC, that this will be a digital public payment system. So allowing two parties to settle without any third party involved. And I think that is really a strong value proposition um, that we want to create. And of course, that needs to respect the privacy of the two parties. Uh, yeah, I, I fully agree again. Um, it's, it's really about the option. Today we have cash in the future. Maybe it's not that heavily used anymore and we should have the option. And if what Thomas said is completely right, 
there are lots of people that would kind of sell their data or and if they get a discount of 2% would pay by distributing all their data. And this is fine. This is fine. Really no issue. But I think there should just should be the option to to um, remain um, remain private. And I think this is definitely something we can agree um, in this in this panel. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jonas. And now continuing with, with you, do you think that uh, or should central banks follow a privacy by design approach? That it's uh, an approach where the technical infrastructure ensures privacy by design and there is no need to trust the central bank regarding privacy. What, yeah. what do you think, Jonas? Yeah, thanks for the question, David. So I think, again, as I, as I stressed in the beginning, it depends on the use case. So where the central bank sees the USP. So if the central bank says the USP is that it's an online and offline payment system or that it allows for programmability, I think you don't need privacy by design. But if the central bank really says the USP is privacy, then I think it should be a privacy by design solution, or we also labeled in our paper trustless privacy, that you do not have to trust the central bank that they will not sell the data or not do anything with the data. Um, because I'm also what Wolfram and Thomas said, we have artificial intelligence being pretty smart these days, right? And we have seen with the crypto, the crypto um, yeah, kind of stories that these pseudo, uh, yeah, kind of pseudonyms can basically be, be traced back to the person. Um, and this is, I think, it should be a way there where no data, no confidential data are really stored. As I said, when the use case is really having a digital cash, having something that is as private as cash. Yeah, at this time, I would like to, to, to open the debate here. If um, some of you want, would like to, to, to say something about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Moser. I could jump in. So um, I, mean, I think what is very important is that the, the central banks think about these privacy issues right from the beginning. I mean, that, that's kind of also a, I think, possible definition of privacy by design. It shouldn't be an afterthought. And I think uh, it's a very good uh, example was during the, the COVID crisis, these tracing apps. And, you know, you saw real differences. Some, some uh, states really took privacy seriously. Most did not. Uh, and you also saw that the people didn't really like these apps. So, that, for instance, the take-up in Switzerland was extremely low because people uh, were worried, you know, what happens to this data? And I think for central banks to, to, to launch a successful CBDC, they have to explain at least what happens to the data. Uh, and so they really have, you know, the people... People have to adopt it. I mean, the option is also people don't have to use it. If they don't trust that their data is handled well, they will not adopt it. So in that sense, the, 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 um, the proposal we made is privacy by design and actually also privacy by default. So it, it's, it goes full way on these uh, design principles. Yeah, I, I also opt for privacy by design because it's uh, such a strong concept which will drive acceptance of CBDC. And um, we were involved in a, in a study that OMFIF uh, did um, on the question of trust in digital payments. And um, here, the response that was collected in 13 countries clearly supported the trust in the central bank as an issuer of currency. And the reason why there is trust into the central bank is because the, the user of um, the currency can use it independently of the issuer. So that is a by design system, which um, um, leads to the high acceptance of public payment. And I believe in the digital space, we should have a similar construct that yes, people trust the central bank 
they trust that they they um, um, also act in in terms of public interest. They are also not politically bound because uh, central banks are independent, and therefore they they are the institution that actually um, offers the most trust into it. And if then on top, the value proposition is also a CBDC solution that is private by design, that would drive acceptance. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Dr. Seidemann, for for your for your answer. And I think that uh, I I agree with all that what you have said. And now changing a little bit the the topic, uh, but this is an open question to the three of you. Which types of technology do, do you think that can ensure a high degree of data privacy? And now it's a DLT, so distributed ledger technology, a viable solution. Should you employ a software-based or a hardware-based solution? What do you think? The first one who would like to, to, to answer. Well, I can I can start. Now we get into the issues where we disagree. So it gets, it's getting <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so, so in our case, I mean, we, we don't use a DLT. Why don't we use a DLT? You know, we are not, not that we have something against DLT, but the reason is that we said, uh, let's keep it as simple as possible. Uh, privacy is easier to achieve without DLT and it's much more scalable. You know, if you want to have a national payments system, uh, if you just go centrally issued, it's, it's extremely simple. So in that sense, you know, I mean, I don't say that DLT can get there, but I think there's still still a lot of research needed to make a DLT both scalable. And then, uh, I mean, I very much like Jonas's uh, approach with uh, zero knowledge proof. But that's, I mean, there, there's a lot of research going on with zero knowledge proofs. It's extremely interesting. I'm also very interested in that. But, uh, and it's getting better and better. But there is also uh, still an issue of, of efficiency. You know, they, those that to, to, to make the proofs, uh, still, uh, you still need quite some computation, less and less and less that they are getting there. But for that reason, we said no DLT. Uh, and we use a, a very simple uh, cryptographic um, um, scheme that has been around for a long time, which just makes it simple and uh, very fast. So that's the reasons why we didn't use DLT. And maybe uh, uh, hardware, so our solution is only software. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the disadvantage of that, it's uh, only usable when you're online. So we do not have an offline solution, uh, which you could, of course, as soon as you use hardware, uh, hardware tokens, you can uh, you can um, basically also have an offline solution. Uh, we also said, you know, security. So uh, this, this is you know not unsolvable, but it makes it more complicated uh, because there are you know to have something that is really not uh, not breakable, a chip that is not breakable, uh, makes it much more difficult. So we just went for the simplest design possible, uh, efficient and simple. Oh, don't be so humble, Mr. Moser. Um, it's not as simple because it's already catering for post-quantum cryptography. Um, so it's it's quite a clever approach, to be honest. Um, we went a bit further because we wanted to address the um, uh, offline payment situation as well. And we want to offer consecutive offline payments, which is even one complexity higher. Um, and therefore, you need a combination of software and hardware solution because we need to offer a secure environment in which an offline payment can take place before then um, eventually the user, uh, user goes online and reconciles the entire system. 
And um, to the question of DLT, um, well, you could give a philosophical answer or you could give a performance-related answer. The philosophical one is a DLT is an interesting approach um, where to solve the double spending pros, um, problem. And this happens through the trust in the, um, uh, in the algorithm instead of the trust in the institution. But since we debated just now, we have trust in the central bank to issue currency. So we don't need to replace it with an algorithm that nobody understands either. So um, I believe philosophically, DLT may be the wrong approach. And also for the, in order to solve the double spending in DLT, you basically trace the history of transactions, which is kind of a challenge if it comes to privacy. So um, in, in our case, um, since I already explained, we are um, solving the issues by looking at different layers. We experimented also with DLT at a certain layer um, because DLT comes with good mechanism to synchronize decentralized databases. Um, however, the performance is not there yet. So um, Filia currently is implemented on a database solution, which can be distributed because if you want to address a larger um, territory or a larger uh, currency, um, it's wise to have redundancy and therefore there needs to be distributed systems. Um, but um, the performance of DLT is not there yet to cope with um, the transaction volumes that we need in order to cover a um, currency in a digital space. Yeah, here, here, here again, um, even if we have completely different approaches, I think we again kind of agree. So here I thought we, we would strongly disagree. So um, to kind of set the scene, so for our approach, um, we kind of, as Thomas said, we used zero knowledge proofs and this was strongly inspired by Zcash, right? So some crypto privacy coin, which is based on DLT. But what we basically decided in the end is to use this kind of cryptographic tool in a centralized setting. So also we, we are not using a DLT because we said in the beginning, it was of course easier also the scalability issues, which has been mentioned. So we thought in the Euro area context, it's currently um, in, in this in the setup, I mean, yeah, it makes sense to rely on the centralized ledger. 